Mickey. <laughs> it's Mickey's Halloween party at Disneyland Park. Mickey's Halloween party at Disneyland Park is on very special nights, September 23rd through October 31st. Visit Disneyland.com slash party for ticket prices and details. Space is limited. Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Karen Tate, of the long-running Voices of the Sacred Feminine radio show, and I thank you for tuning in to our ongoing Foremothers and Wayshower series that's become kind of popular. Uh, the music you were just listening to is from a U.K. group called Be Optimistic, and the song is called Maria, which they tell me was inspired by Goddess. As for you, uh, the listener, uh, whether you've been with me for the past two years or you're a newcomer, I can't tell you how much I really appreciate your listener loyalty, so please keep tuning in and sending me articles and emails. Um, I love that connection with you, and I'd love it if you'd mark my show as a favorite or your friend uh, on Blog Talk. You can do all that from the show page uh, there on Blog Talk Radio. Well, um, I hope whether you are uh, here across town or across the globe, I hope you're enjoying the holiday season by whatever name you call it and not letting the burdens and obligations take the joy away. Uh, Just remember, you can make your own traditions if the ones you grow up with no longer work, which reminds me of a suggestion made last week um, by our guest, uh, Patrick McCullum, the Wiccan chaplain of Cherry Hill Seminary. Uh, He's also the chaplain for the California Department of Corrections. And Patrick suggested that when you're saying grace with family and friends this year, speak up and give thanks and gratitude to Goddess. It might be a little awkward at first if you're in mixed company, but it's a small thing we can all do to bring her forth into our world today. And speaking of Patrick, uh, you might have noticed if you've been following closely, we were supposed to actually have the foremother, Eleanor Gadden, on the show last week. Well, she was in Europe and wasn't able to make the show, and we're rescheduling her as we speak. She's probably going to be on the show in uh, April. And uh, it was all good after all. It all worked out because Patrick was just back from participating in the Parliament of World Religions, and we got to hear some wonderful feedback from that event uh, that happens only every five years. And he tells us that the sacred feminine is really carving out a place for herself in the world. So if you didn't get a chance to listen last week with the holiday and everything, don't miss it. Just go to the show archives, and uh, the shows are there indefinitely. 
And uh, as a reminder, before we get to tonight's guest, uh, Isaac Bonowitz, who many of you have requested as a guest on the show, and uh, and we talk about his four decades as a priest of goddess, his music, his status as a heretic about matriarchies and triple goddesses and whatever else comes up. I want to tell you uh, we've moved the sometimes controversial but always informative What's the Buzz segment to the bottom of the show. Uh, that's the segment when I tell you about the bees that have been buzzing around in my bonnet all week, uh, where we show how the sacred feminine and or her ideals are relevant in today's world. And it's where I'm an equal opportunity whistleblower when women's right or b- rights are being stomped on, and there's good news, too. So stay tuned uh, through the end of the show. This week we'll be covering uh, some of these uh, items uh, that I'm about to uh, mention to you on What's the Buzz. Uh, Some we're going to just recap briefly from last week because the show ran long and we sort of ran out of time. So we're going to touch just real quickly on Barbie and a Burka, uh, the ISIS temple fragment found in Alexandria, uh, the African government of Uganda uh, banning female genital mutilation, the rogue evangelical church that's opening its doors to gays, Avatar, the new movie by James Cameron as a powerful voice for the sacred feminine, uh, some items you might not want to miss in the January-February issue, issue of Archaeology Magazine. And uh, a really sad uh, account of uh, lesbians who are facing corrective rape in South Africa. So if you sent in any of those articles to me to share, you know who you are. Thank you. And um, so you'll want to be sure to stay tuned while uh, those bees vent their relief later in the show. And just like you can uh, call in and talk to our guest, you can call in later and talk to me about whatever's on your mind. The call-in number to speak to our guest, Isaac, or myself later is 718-766-4662. So please consider calling in uh, to speak to us. Now let me turn my attention to our patiently waiting guest. Uh, Here are just some of his impressive credentials. He, uh, let's see, Isaac uh, is one of North America's leading experts on ancient and modern Druidism, uh, witchcraft, magic, and the occult, and the rapidly growing Earth Religions Movement. Uh, Practicing neo-pagan priest, scholar, teacher, bard, and polytheologian for over 35 years, he has coined much of the vocabulary and articulated many of the issues that have shaped the rapidly growing neo-pagan movement in the U.S. and Canada, with opinions both playful and controversial. He's the author of Real Magic, Authentic, uh, okay, help me with this one, Isaac. Thaumaturgy. Thaumaturgy. Okay, you're going to have to tell me what that even is. Wonderworking. What is it? Wonderworking. Wonderworking. Okay, all right. The Pagan Man, uh, Bonowitz's Essential Guide to Witchcraft and Wicca, which was formerly Witchcraft, a Concise Guide, Bonowitz's Essential Guide to Druidism, uh, Neo-Pagan Rites, uh, lots, lots, and lots, and lots of credentials uh, this this fella has amassed in the last uh, couple decades. Songwriter, speaker, teacher, um, and we are going to benefit from all of that tonight. So, Isaac, welcome to the, to the show. Thank you so very much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, um, as a Druid priest, you know, we originally talked about you You potentially uh, were going to be on the show in January, uh, but instead you're on tonight, and I'm so glad to have you. But we were going to um, sort of talk about Bridget and uh, her prominence uh, in contemporary Druidism. Is, is that an okay place for us to start? That's a perfect place to start. Okay. Um, 
the the modern day Druid movement places a very heavy emphasis on the arts and on creative inspiration. And of course, Bridget, as the uh, matron goddess of the bards, is intimately associated with the topic of inspiration. So you find that she tends to be, you know, way up there in the top favorite goddesses of the modern-day Druid movements. Okay. Well, you know, something I've always wondered about Bridget, and I have to confess, I've been personally more drawn to, like, you know, Sekhmet, Isis, the Egyptian pantheon, mm-hmm. Artemis. So I don't know everything I probably should know about Bridget. And I know she's a fire goddess, but isn't, you know, with all her Bridget Wells, isn't she also a water goddess? So I've always thought the two together make steam. And, you know, that felt very powerful. But am I, like, way off track with that? Well, no, you're not, actually. Bridget is associated both with fire, especially solar fire. Uh, uh, Patricia Monaghan believes she was originally a solar goddess, and I'm inclined to agree with her. Uh, But she's also associated with uh, the wells and with the ancient Indo-European connection between wells and the wisdom of the earth. So Bridget is, is, is both fire and water, and this is one of the, the core common Indo-European concepts of the relationship between fire and water as a, a mystical one that uh, brings awareness and enlightenment to people who pay attention to it properly. So, but is that common? I mean, is it common that goddesses are uh, of two elements like that, or is she unique? Well, to begin with, you have to remember that fire and water as elements, quote-unquote, are an artificial construct of the patriarchal Greek philosophers. Okay. Okay, that in point of fact, prior to Empedocles, um, there wasn't a system of elements. Um, what they had was something closer to a system of worlds. There was uh, uh, the land, the waters, and the sky as three organic realms of being, that is to say, places you could find other living creatures, uh, and that existed on the horizontal plane. And then on the vertical plane of existence, there was the underworld, the middle world, and the celestial world. And then slicing through all of that was a distinction between this world and the other world, or the realm of fairy. And then slicing through all of that from another direction, the fourth dimension, you had a distinction between that which was light and that which was dark, which did not mean good and evil originally. That's Zoroaster's hang-up. Mm-hmm. Originally, it just meant safe versus dangerous. Okay. So um, the cosmology, at least among the Indo-European peoples, who are the ones I'm most familiar with as a Druid, um, was very complex and very organic. It did not have these abstract ideas. Fire, on the other hand, fire well and tree were the three sacred gateways through which it was possible to connect to any of the other worlds or realms. So Bridget is a gateway goddess, among other things. And it is through her sacred fire and through her sacred well that we can reach out and connect with spirit in other realms and worlds. Okay. And if someone wanted to know more about that, which of your books do you talk about that most in? Well, this particular discussion of uh, cosmology is in the um, Bonowitz's Essential Guide to Druidism. Okay. And how is Druidism different from just Wicca, for instance? Oh, boy. Well, that's kind of like saying how, how is Catholicism different from Presbyterianism. 
Okay. All right. Okay. It's, it's, on, all right. <laughs> on one level, they're both polytheistic pagan religions. Um, Wicca tends to be small group oriented, private, and exclusionary. Um, Druidism tends to be medium to large group oriented, public, and inclusionary. Okay. That's why the Druids are always out at Stonehenge. Well, um, the original Druids were a social class. Mm-hmm. And part of what uh, a subset of that social class were the priests and priestesses who provided religious services to their community as a whole. And so most of what they did, they did in public. So uh, what would... In fact, the closest e- equivalent to what the Druids were among the Celts can be found among uh, the Vedic Brahmins in India. Because okay. there, too, you have a social class composed of both men and women um, who were basically the intelligentsia of their tribes. Mm-hmm. And some of them, therefore, were judges, and some were doctors, and some were lawyers, and some were historians, and some were priests, and some were priestesses, and some were magicians. And anybody, basically, who worked primarily with their head rather than with their hands or with their passion was the way they looked at it in those days. And mm-hmm. that, of course, was the warriors. Mm-hmm. So uh, the people who were the intelligentsia in a tribe uh, among the Indo-European peoples uh, were the ones who got called the Brahmins or the Flamins or the Godis or the Druids. Okay. Well, so um, it, it, as far as Druidism goes, were the men and the women pretty much, um, you know, was that sort of an egalitarian thing? Was it were they equal? As far as we know, it was it was pretty darn egalitarian, not by modern standards, mm-hmm. but by ancient standards, it was pretty darn egalitarian. We certainly have um, references in the Irish and the Welsh um, oral literature, the stuff that got written down at least to there being druidesses, to there being uh, women of power and authority. Uh, Many of those got erased, but enough have survived to make it fairly clear that, yes, indeed, there were plenty of women um, in the druid class who functioned uh, as important people. Um, The problem we, we have with thinking of druids and women together is the actions of the the Mesopagan revivalist Druid movement in the 1700s and 1800s, who tried to create this idea of the ancient Druids as having been like biblical patriarchs. Okay, and that would be... They all all had long gray beards, and they were all (laughs) sitting around waiting for Jesus to get born so they could (laughs) run out and convert. Okay. That, That was basically the image of Druidism that the English language had for 300 years. Well, that's that's a shame. <laughs> yes. Well, and uh, the mo- modern day Mesopagan Druids are a little looser than that, but uh, it took the uh, creation of the Neopagan Druid movements to uh, bring modern research into the topic. Well, if I can, I can sort of digress. I, you know, it, I, I sort of piqued my own curiosity that's here about, show. about Stonehenge. Do you have your yeah. own um, uh, ideas about what's, what the purpose of Stonehenge? We've heard so many controversial things over the last years. Well, there's there's there's, there's a lot of different theories, and and I tend to be a multi-model person. I believe that Stonehenge was built and torn down and rebuilt and torn down and rebuilt again by a lot of different people over a very long time, and they all had their own, you know, intentions. 
Um, it's fairly clear that at least some of it was used for predicting uh, astronomical events, which w was, would be very useful for both magical purposes and mundane purposes. Um, I don't believe it had anything to do with Atlantis or UFOs, although there are plenty of people who think it did. Um, it's fairly uh, obvious at this point with research that's been done over the last 30 or 40 years that ordinary human beings with uh, ropes and levers and, and pulleys, and, or not pulleys, but uh, uh, simple stone and wood implements could have built Stonehenge. Mm -hmm. did not need, you did not need flying saucers or modern engineering stuff. Okay. Uh, I, in fact, I have, a, I have a reference in my book, The Pagan Man, to a couple of folks who have put up stone circles using mostly muscle power, having, having done this, you know, in the last 20 years. Okay, all right. And, so, and well, so, they certainly had a lot of manpower. Yeah, if you have a lot of uh, superfluous manpower, you want something to keep the young warriors out of mischief, you know, give them a nice big heavy job to do. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I, and I was just reading this article recently about how did religion evolve, and they were talking about how religion became very convenient to round up people to work uh, you know, in, in agriculture, you know, to get the harvest in, to do the planting. If they could put a religious overtone to it, it gave them that much more incentive other than, you know, they might eat. Um, so anyway, yeah, but I, that's, that, that's one of those monothesis people. They're trying to come up with a single explanation for it. Um, religion, above all, is one of those multi-model phenomena in uh, human existence. There are lots of different reasons why religions evolve. And uh, I believe religions evolve right along with human consciousness. You, you couldn't have one without the other. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we're too diverse a species for it to just, there just to be one answer. I mean, that, would, uh, that, that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, right, but that is, uh, that, that is the principle of monothesisism, the idea that there's one answer to every question, there's one solution to every problem, and that anything else is either inferior or an evil imitation. Well, it sounds like somebody who wants to keep things real simple. <laughs> well, yes, yes. And 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 it it relates heavily to dualism, which is the invisible poisoned water that we fish swim in. Mm. Um, now, I, I'm making a distinction between dualism and polarity here. Dualism is the yes, no, black, white, either or, right, wrong, up, down, male, female, one, zero attitude of you're either 100% on one side or you're 100% on the extreme opposite side, and there's only black and white. There are no shades of gray. No moderates in that, uh, with right. that label. That's, <laughs> that's dualism, and that goes back to Zoroaster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right? Yep. Polarity is the idea of yin and yang, that uh, opposites embrace each other rather than are at war with each other. Well, the yin and yang symbol is a perfect uh, metaphor for that. Exactly. Exactly. It. Yeah. And okay. and uh, polarity is what you see in Taoism and in many other Asian religions, and it's what you see in a lot of the modern neo-pagan religions where uh, we'd rather make love than war. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Um, well, I feel like we sort of digressed away from Bridget, and I felt away like from Bridget. I, it, it, not intentionally, but you know, we sort of went off on a rant here. It was very interesting, but I want to make sure we we give her her due. Um, it, 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 what is it you want us to know about Bridget's prominence in um, contemporary Druidism? Well, I, I I find it interesting that almost every single person I meet in the modern Druid movement who considers him or herself to be a bard has written at least one poem and or song and or ritual hymn to Bridget. They, uh, re- regardless of how many other deities they may have written material for, Bridget is always always there at the center. Well, that seems logical, though, don't you think? Well, it does to me, but I'm a big fan of hers. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe I am, too. <laughs> But uh, Bridget represents fire on multiple levels of reality. She represents fire that is the symbol of spirit, which is what fire was before the whole air, earth, fire, and water thing came around. Mm-hmm. It represents the, the living presence of spirit, especially deity. Mm-hmm. Fire also represents creativity. It represents truth. It represents beauty. All these things in the different Indo-European languages. Now, I want you to note, I'm being very careful to say languages and cultures, I'm not saying races. Okay. We're not, I'm not talking about race. Okay. I'm talking about people who speak linguistically connected languages. All right. All right. Uh, George Dumézil, the guy who single-handedly revived comparative mythology in the 20th century, was the person who figured out that people who speak related languages tend to have related folklore, mythology, and theology. All right. Because one of the things you use your language for is telling stories. Mm-hmm. Okay. So and we've got to think back to these times when people, everyone wasn't literate and could read and write. When hardly anyone was literate. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and if you look carefully at Greek mythology and Vedic mythology and Hittite mythology and Irish mythology and German mythology, you find the same cast of characters going through the same divine soap operas. Okay. So you find very similar gods and goddesses with very similar stories to the point where you can fill in missing pieces of the jigsaw puzzle of one deity's story by looking at the corresponding story in the other related linguistic uh, language families. But Isaac, let me ask you this, because I, I asked Pat Monahan this, and um, and I'm thinking maybe I need to ask you too. What about when they aren't connected linguistically? How do we account for the Amaterasu, you know, Japanese sun goddess myth? Um, you know how the earth was barren until um, I, I forget her counterpart Uzumi, I think it was, made her layoff, and then the light returned. And say, for instance, uh, Demeter and uh, Balbo. Okay, well, one, it turns out there are some connections between the Japanese and the Indo-European language family. Okay. Through, through the Tokarians and, 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 and the Vedic peoples. However, it's very far back. Um, I don't actually lose a lot of sleep over this because if you think about the possibilities, there are a limited number of ways people can decide whether or not, okay, is the sun deity going to be male or female? Okay, if they're going to be the one gender, what are the stories we're going to tell about them? Well, there'll be stories that relate to the sun and to stereotypes and or archetypes of being male or female. 
So you're saying so, you're saying it's just a logical. It, it, it was just. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, yeah, I'm just saying some of it is logical similarities that occur. Okay. Um, and, and that we don't necessarily have to look too deeply into it. Um, you can find plenty of um, stories from other language families, like the Chinese language families or the um, various African language families, where the characters have totally different personalities and totally different stories. And, you know, there, while there may be some human universals, there's a lot more complexity. Okay. And and bef- and and I'm sorry before I interrupted you to go down that path. You were I think trying to make a point. So there's so many me. lovely paths to go down. <laughs> well, it's nice to have options, right? <laughs> so so please go ahead and finish your train of thought before I so rudely interrupted. <laughs> I'm not even sure which train of thought it was. <laughs> All right. Well, we can we can start a new one unless uh, something's tickling your brain there. Well, I, ju- I just wanted to uh, let me wrap up the thing about Indo-European peoples. Okay. Okay. At various points in time, from India all the way out to Ireland, and from Scandinavia, uh, possibly down into West Africa, um, there were tribal peoples who spoke languages that were linguistically connected languages. That is to say, they were they were uh, descendant languages from older mother tongues, and those people wound up having stories that were very similar. Um, they wound up having cultures that were very similar. Um, and among those were the Celtic peoples. They were the westernmost of the Indo-European peoples. And the Celtic peoples were the ones who gave us the name Druids for their clergy class. And that's how I got involved in Druidism. And that's why my you know, personal research obsession became Indo-European studies. I certainly make absolutely no claims that the Indo-European language family is superior to any of the other language families on this planet. We have lots of wonderful languages with beautiful literature and, and folklore and religions in them. I'm just knowledgeable about and fond of the Indo-European ones. Okay. Um, well, it, it, but well, well, piggybacking on that, um, mm-hmm. you know, let let me, uh, you know, sort of touch on this, uh, the the idea of, uh, you know, when, when you're a druid, um, who are your primary deities? I mean, is it just primarily the Celtic pantheon? Well, you know, it depends. This is, and 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 there are so many answers in druidism where the response begins with, it depends. Uh, probably about a third of all the people who call themselves Druids today are um, Arenophiles. That is to say, they're big fans of ancient Ireland and of Irish culture. About another third are Welsh-focused, uh, where, where they're interested in Welsh culture, Welsh mythology, and the Welsh version of Druidism. Today, in modern neo-pagan Druidism, we have a pan-Indo-European approach to it. And so we have people who are affiliated with us as Druids who are focused on Scandinavian paganism or uh, Vedic paganism or Hittite paganism or Greek paganism. We even have some Roman Druids. Wow. So okay. uh, the answer it's is a pretty big umbrella. umbrella. Uh, it's, it's a big umbrella. But we don't have Chinese ones, and we don't have Comanche ones, and we don't have um, Swahili ones. 
Why? Because that would be like mixing Chinese opera and Baroque music. <laughs> or uh, like mixing country and western with, oh, I don't know, Australian didgeridoo. You could do it, but it's going to be a stretch. It's going to be a mess. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, this makes me think, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to what do, I, what do I know, what have I seen about the Druids? And, uh, you know, I have to confess probably, um, you know, what the average mainstream person knows about Druidism. Have there been any contemporary movies that have come close to getting it right at all? Or like no. the movie Roar? Remember the movie, uh, the series Roar, Roar was that was out? Yes, it was fun. Okay. Um, there, 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 there. There have been a lot of movies over the years that have have, have uh, uh, attempted to depict druidism. The problem is that they all tend to either romanticize it ridiculously, or they they tend to make it dark and evil and barbaric, <laughs> you know, with virgin sacrifices and all that sort of thing. Well, that's probably the Christian lens you're looking through there. Well, pretty much. But um, <laughs> the, uh, what would be the most common misconceptions about it? Well, let's see. The most common misconceptions about the Druids is that they were evil witch doctors who were manipulating their ignorant um, tribespeople, um, that they were bloodthirsty and were constantly doing human sacrifices. Um, this Basically, there's a lot of negative propaganda that dates back to Julius Caesar. Well, that, well, that was, it was written by their enemies. Well, exactly. Just like Cleopatra got a bad rap. As, uh, well, precisely, yes. Um, and, and she had the additional problem that she dared to be a strong woman. Oh, yeah, heaven forbid. <laughs> and, and the ancient Greeks and Romans did not like that particularly. Um, yeah, what you see is a situation where most of the ancient Greek and Roman writings about the Druids fell into two categories. Uh, Stuart Piggott, who was a grouchy old man archaeologist, said this in his book, The Druids, which is actually a pretty good book despite his grouchiness. He said that most of the discussion broke into schools of hard primitivism and soft primitivism. It was either people thinking that the Druids were nasty, evil witch doctors who were barbaric savages, or they were these noble mystics wandering in a Celtic fog through the mists of antiquity, you know, meditating on noble topics. And in point of fact, the ancient Druids were actually doctors and lawyers and historians and genealogists and animal husbandry people, or at least until I caught them at it, and um, priests and priestesses and other folks who were just part of their local culture. Okay. Well, did they leave much behind, much of their own writing behind, to be able to glean? Not a lot. You have to try to reconstruct, and we can reconstruct about 80% of what paleo-pagan Druidism was all about. Um, you need to combine what... what there, the little bit that there is from the Greek and Romans that can be trusted with the material from the Irish and the Welsh oral literature that survived and then was censored by the Christians with what archaeologists have been able to dig up uh, from the Celtic Isles during the time period when the tribes, we, uh, the archaeologists labeled Celts, were there, um, along with uh, what has survived in folk song and uh, folk literature, and what has survived by comparing um, the stories and the customs that we find from the other Indo-European tribes with the particularly Celtic tribes. Okay. Putting that all together, you can 
you, you can come up with something that pretty much, like I said, resembles um, what the Brahmins were doing in India before uh, the Muslims came in and ruined the neighborhood. Okay. That is to say, um, in, in ancient India before the Mongol, inva- uh, Mongol invasions, before the Muslims came in, um, Hindu- Hinduism was pretty lively. And it was very emphasis, very much on polytheistic, and it was sensualistic, and uh, women were priests, and uh, nobody made a big fuss about it. And then Islam came in, Changed and in all reaction that. <laughs> against Islam, uh, the Hindus, uh, the priesthood, the men, decided that they would suppress their women, they would suppress the sensuality of their religion, and they would try to make it respectable like the Muslim religion was. Now, you won't get very many modern Brahmins who will agree with me on that analysis, but I think that's what happened. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Um, well, uh, it's not that it's not interesting, but I want to get to some other things tonight and um, sure. not, not, not focus just on, on, on Druidism. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very much about, um, you know, making the divine feminine, finding ways to make her relevant today mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and seeing how things maybe have changed. You know, hopefully, uh, you know, moving us in a better direction. And, I mean, you've been at this a long time. Um, can you see progress? I mean, do you have hope that we're moving in a good direction and, you know, society may actually, maybe a couple generations from now, shift into a more feminine-centered, goddess-oriented society? Well, I see us shifting more towards balance, I think. Um, so to the extent that becoming more feminine would make us balanced, Yes. Okay. Well, that, um, and that's what I meant, you know, because I'm not one of these feminists who think women should rule the world, you know. Well, there's no archy like anarchy. <laughs> um, the uh, the Gaia hypothesis, which, as far as I'm concerned, is the Gaia theory, has now become widely spread enough that people are paying attention to the Earth Mother or Mother Nature, and they're beginning to treat her far more seriously as a deity than they have in, in centuries past. I mean, do you know, have you ever noticed how many television commercials there are where Mother Nature is a character? Yes, yes. And, and, and they may occasionally make fun of her, but most of the time it's not nice to make fun of Mother Nature. Mm-hmm, yes, most of the time I remember she's those. treated very seriously. Um, in fact, when I was... Uh, uh, you mentioned the, uh, the comment that Patrick made last week about mm-hmm. saying uh, saying a pagan grace mm-hmm. at, 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 at meals. Mm-hmm. Um, I made up a pagan grace years ago that, that, that began, um, we give thanks to the Earth Mother, the source of all nourishment. And I have had very positive response to that every time I've done it. And I've done it in a lot of you know public circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are beginning to realize we are part of nature. We are not separate from her. And seeing seeing nature as goddess and goddess as nature is an important step towards deliberately blurring those lines that have kept us separate, not just from nature but from each other. Well, agreed. Well, I mean, you know, Patrick has you know has told me stories where in the beginning, I mean, his house was actually firebombed for daring mention the idea of a goddess in public. I mean, have you had any experiences like that way back when? And you know, and maybe not now things are not 
not quite that bad. I haven't been firebombed. Uh, I've been shot at a couple of times. Uh, and I know a few other pagan elders who got their houses shot at or people tried to set them on fire. Fortunately, that sort of died out. Um, and, and let's hope it stays died out. But, uh, but I mean, I'm afraid compared to that, the, I mean, the shit. Compared to that, it's a lot easier now than it was. I mean, um, in general, unless you deliberately go to the wrong part of the country, to an area where people are going to be hostile to you and try to be rude about the goddess, you can mention the goddess in public these days, and a lot of people will just simply sit there and nod. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is, this is a bit of a, a disappointment to the people who want to be martyrs. And, and, and face, it, we, 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 face it, we have them in the goddess movement. Yeah, and and our own fundamentalists. <laughs> and and we have our own fundamentalists. Fortunately, we just laugh at the fundamentalists. They, <laughs> yeah. they don't get a, they don't get a lot of traction. Well, and I guess you know that's probably a good segue. Speaking of fundamentalists, at least that's the way I see uh, you know what I'm about to ask you about is in a way fundamentalism. Um, you know, I've, I've, I have run into you know women in the goddess community over the years. I've been doing what I do, and uh, you know some of them feel that uh, you know goddess is for women. You know that there's no place. Uh, for for men, you know, uh, have you encountered much of that? And I mean, is well, there anything re- you'd want to say about it? I I remember something happened. Oh, I guess now it was about 15 years ago. Uh, I went to a local UU church that my then wife and I, you know, attended from time to time because we liked the people there. And there was a woman who was going to be giving a goddess lecture. She had been involved in organizing this goddess study program for Unitarian Universalists. Mm-hmm. And um, up, uh, she was circulating among the, uh, the the members of the congregation before uh, before the service began. And I walked up and introduced myself to her, and I said, "You know, I'm really looking forward to your presentation. I've been uh, a priest of the Earth Mother for 25 years now." And she looked at me, and she reared up her nose, and she huffed. That's impossible. <laughs> and stalked away as if I had said the single most insulting thing it was possible for me to have said to her. Mm. And I just said to myself, hmm, that's interesting. That's interesting, yeah. <laughs> because um, I had been uh, ordained as a, as a priest in the Reformed Druids of North America back in 1969. And uh, the Earth Mother was the primary goddess that... Uh, we focused on at the beginning of our rituals and to this day in modern neo-pagan druidism uh, the earth mother or Gaia is a central figure mm-hmm. and you know uh, I'm, I'm people like this saying you know you have to, you have to be female in order to worship the goddess um, I'm, incl- I'm inclined to remember Oberon Zell's principle of non-choice if they don't like it they can't have any <laughs> well, you know, you know they, they, they can choose to worship alone or only with other women, and that's mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, what yeah. they can't do is stop those of us men who love the goddesses from worshiping them. Well, but I think what bothers me about it is, um, you know, a lot of times when men um, who are goddess friendly uh, run into that sort of attitude. You know, I think it's sort of discouraging, and and I don't think it tends to 
uh, emulate the energy of goddess either. Well, it's my just, personal I, opinion. But I, I discussed a lot of this in. Uh, I have a chapter in uh, my book, The Pagan Man, where I discuss current relationships between pagan men and pagan women. Mm-hmm. And I, I discussed the fact that, yes, indeed, there are women who act very hostile towards men for daring to be pagan. Mm-hmm. And I quote a lot of the different things that different pagan men said to me about this. And the general conclusion that we seem to have come to was, well, if they want to live miserable and unhappy and hostile, that's their right. They can be that way if they want to. But um, there are plenty of pagan men who love the goddesses, and uh, we have no difficulty worshiping her. Well, good. I'm, you know, I'm. Uh, well, I, I mean, I, that's how I've always believed. I mean, I, I just, I could never go there with them. And quite frankly, sometimes it would, you know, sort of, you know, uh, put me in an awkward position. You know, but I just knew too many well, men who loved the goddess. You know, there and, are. I, I, I won't ask you how old you are. But I will say that I suspect that in large part there's a generational aspect here because the earliest generation of women trying to promote the worship of the goddess were very much like the earliest generation of African Americans trying to support civil rights. They were a little distrustful of those they saw as the enemy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And some of them never got over it. Right, right. Well, I mean, I was on a Yahoo list once and uh, with some pretty prominent women, I have to admit. And, you know, they were talking about parthenogenesis. And, uh, you know, I really, if I read between the lines, I really just got the feeling that they believed that the American Medical Association was hiding the fact that it's uh, very doable and achievable and they would have been very happy if, um, you know, we just went on about our business without any man. <laughs> and it was sad, really, you know, and I started thinking, and, and, well... And, and, the, and this was a conspiracy involving all the genetic researchers <laughs> and biologists in the world. Well, you know, Isaac, I really, I got to the point where I tried to, tried to see through what this was all about. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I've been married to a great man for 25 years. He adores me. I mean, when I was writing my second book, he was the one that w- made it possible because he was washing the clothes and cooking the food and running the errands so that after I worked all day, I could sit at the computer all night and not have to be the domestic goddess. But, you know, every woman hasn't, I think, found something like that. You know, they maybe only had bad experiences with men. So maybe that carries into the spirituality, you know. Well, one of the important things, if you get away from dualism and you focus on pluralism, on the idea that, you're going to love this, that reality is complicated, ambiguous, and messy, i.e. a classic uh, feminine spiritual view, then you realize that you cannot draw a sharp, clear-cut dividing lines. Yeah. That, that um, everything is going to blur and blend into everything else, no matter how hard we try to make sharp, clear-cut dividing lines. Yeah, but some people need those lines to be sharper than others. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I, I tend to think of these people as like wounded birds. Yeah. You know, yeah. you don't want to push them too hard because they're still fragile. Yeah. Well, and but you don't you, need to take what they say at face value either. Well, no, but you know, but I think some of them have possibly been, you know, uh, abused or and you know, and, and I'm sure they, many of them have been. Yeah, that's and just, haven't just you know gotten beyond that? You know, they're still yeah. haven't healed that. You know, 
Um, well, you know, this might be a good time to talk about uh, why you're a, a heretic about matriarchies and triple goddesses. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the latter is a little easier to, to, to explain quickly than the former. The, the idea of the triple goddess, Mother Maiden Crone, was predominantly invented by Robert Graves. Okay. In the middle of the 20th century in his book, The White Goddess. Right. Which is a lovely poetic book and terrible from a scholarly point of view. Um, if you look at Celtic religion, for example, you find a lot of triple goddesses, but they're not mother maiden crones, they're sisters. Mm-hmm. Or they're triplets of each other. Okay. And, and none of them is seen as, as, as older or younger than the other. They're all, they stand side by side, as, sometimes as the three mothers, or you'll see the three Bridgets, or the three Morugu. And okay. it, it's not a matter of mother maiden and crone. Um, there's there's some historical indication that Mr. Graves was munching on some funny mushrooms <laughs> while he was writing The White Goddess, and that it explains a great deal about the, some of the things he came up with. Okay. Um, but the, the, I have no trouble working with the Mother Maiden Crone archetype when I'm in a Wiccan circle doing a Wiccan ritual, mm-hmm. because that's part of the cosmology of Wicca. Mm-hmm. But it's modern. It's not ancient. Mm-hmm. Okay. This isn't to say that you can't find an example of a grandmother goddess in every religion on the planet. But you'll also find, you know, Amazons, and that's not part of the Mother Maiden Crone image. No, you'll I mean, where would, find, where would she fit in? You know, I mean, she doesn't... children deities, and that's not part of the Mother Maiden Crone picture either. So where, where, how do you think um, Graves arrived at that? I mean, is what was his logic for... Uh, you know, coming and and are we, as, are we as making I a dis- as I understand it, he put that book together in about three months while staying on his summer villa on the Isle of Majorca with just the books he had in his library in the cabin there. He well, that could be dangerous. Have, he did not have <laughs> he did not have access to his scholarly library, and it was pure inspiration. And, okay, that was what the goddess wanted people to look at at that point in human history. Mm-hmm. I see it as he was inspired by one goddess or another for reasons known best to her. She wanted that archetype out there, and, okay, fine, the archetype is now out there. Mm-hmm. She succeeded. Well, I'm and, sure you're probably... was just the vessel. Well, and, well, I'm sure you're probably familiar with the the new idea to interject queen between mother and crone these days. Uh, uh, no, I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't heard oh. of that. Well, um, well, yeah. I mean, it's that's you know sort of the new thing on the horizon. Um, Mama Donna Hennis, I think, might have been one of the first ones to to adopt that idea. And uh, Reverend, well, that Abel, makes sense because people used to become crones when they were forty and died yeah. before they were fifty. Right, but now life is longer. Life is a lot longer, so you better come up with some new archetypes to stick in the middle there. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, and if you're talking about it in terms of the phases of a of an individual woman's life, there's a, you know, she just sure. sort of maybe comes into her own by the time the kids are out of the house and she's ready to, you know, to sort of sow her sow her oats and, you know, really come into her own power and, uh, you know, bef- you know, and she's got a long way to go before she's a crone. And 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 just remember, it's not an empty nest until her stuff is out of the garage <laughs> and the basement 
and the attic. <laughs> well, when the, the carport. The nest may never be empty. <laughs> <laughs> it may well be. <laughs> okay. okay. Now, as, as for the matriarchy thing, I am one of those people who believes there probably never was anything even vaguely resembling what most people today think of when they use the word matriarchy. Okay, so let's make a distinction. Let's be really clear. What, uh, what do you think they think it is versus what maybe it might have been? Okay. I like to start with the core definitions. If you're, if you're dealing with archy, archy means rule by. Patriarchy is ruled by the fathers. Matriarchy is ruled by the mothers. Mm-hmm. And when anthropologists first started researching the topic, Patriarchy was the term that was used to refer to cultures in which the majority of decisions outside of the family were made by men. Mm -hmm. That turned out to be 99.9% of them. The remaining percentage turned out to be egalitarian cultures in which the men and the women seemed to, in very primitive Stone Age tribes, made decisions collectively. Mm -hmm. Um. There was a man named, oh, what was it, Goldberg, Stephen Goldberg. He wrote, a, he wrote a terribly heretical book many years ago called The Inevitability of Patriarchy, in which he analyzed all 4,000 of the known human cultures then in the uh, anthropological databanks. This was like the 1970s or, or so, uh, to, decide, to determine whether or not the majority of the extra-familial decisions were made by men or women. And what he discovered was roughly the percentage I gave you. 99-plus percent of them, the decisions were made by men, and the others were egalitarian. He didn't find a single matriarchal culture. This prompted a number of women who had been promoting the idea of matriarchal cultures to denounce him as a heretic. Um, and he then promptly proceeded to do the nastiest thing that any scholar can ever do. In the next edition of his book, he quoted them, and then he followed their footnotes. And he found out that their footnotes were rigged, mm. that they were misquoted, they were things taken out of context, they were playing fast and loose with whatever academic material that they actually quoted, and they didn't quote a lot of academic material, mm -hmm. and that in point of fact they were being intellectually dishonest about it. This led to a movement in the 80s to redefine matriarchy as something other than matriarchy, a movement that is still going on today. I believe uh, Renee Eisler wound up being one of the earliest ones to redefine matriarchy as being egalitarianism. Well, that's, that's what I grew up on thinking it was. It was more of an egalitarian society that revered a feminine face of God. No. Is that sort of the new... That, 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 I, I believe that's, that, that, that's the current politically correct definition of matriarchy. Here's the irony, okay? The very concept of archy is a male-dominant, power-centric concept. So we need a different language. You need a different language. You don't need the archy language. And I don't, I, I, I'm good at coining words, but I haven't come up with a replacement for this one yet. Um, well, I mean, aren't they using matrilineal? Matrilineal just means genetic descent uh, or, or hereditary descent being counted through the female line. That's there right. Are, there are scores and scores of human cultures in which they keep track of 
genealogy through the female line. That's not the same thing as the women having power. Okay, I see what you're saying. Okay, and what happened was a lot of people, once they realized that they had lost the argument about matriarchies, simply started cheating. Okay. They started playing fast and loose with the data, trying to come up with some way in which they could uh, find some human cultures in which women had been in charge. Um, I, I just had a caller show up on the switchboard. Um, do you mind if we uh, take the call? No, not at all. Okay. All right. Let's see if we can get uh, this caller on the line. Um, hi, this is Karen with Voices of the Sacred Feminine. You're on the line. Did you have a question for Isaac? Yes. Well, actually more of a comment. Uh, I don't really embrace the term matriarchy myself. However, I think we get in a lot of trouble if, I mean, I don't like the archy part of it myself, but the, we get in a lot of trouble if we just stick to a definition that was laid down in the 19th century and said that is what we're going to talk about and we're going to say that is there or that is not there. What I use is the word mother right, because then we're talking not only about lineage, but a whole complex of customs, cultural systems, let's call them, where you have major locality, you have female spheres of power, you have a whole lot of stuff like that, and there are quite a few societies that fit that definition. As long as we keep arguing about matriarchy, we're not going to get anywhere because we're going to be talking about something that was framed in the wrong way. Okay, but if you're going to use the term mother right, you need to know that that was coined by J.J. Bachhoffen. I don't care. I do know that, actually. In the 1850s. I don't care. So what? It's a great term. Yes, but it doesn't mean what you think it means. Excuse me. How do you know what I think it means? Okay, okay. When he coined it, it didn't mean what you just defined. Look, see, this is the thing. I don't want to be tied down to what 19th century men thought. European here's, the, here's, the, here's the problem, and it's a core problem in linguistics, is who gets to define the language? Well, exactly. And, and how do you come is, up with new definitions for Is it going to be 19th century white men, or is it going to be modern people who are looking at a record of egalitarian cultures and saying, look, there are other cultural models other than Steve Goldberg's idea of male dominance since the beginning of time? There are other um, culture models. Let's look at them. How many? Oh, well, you know, right now, surviving in the world, we can still name a bunch of them. And they've all faced what, a dozen? conquest. Pardon me? A dozen or so? At least. But we okay, also can out of, look out at of 4, historical. Yeah, because, you know, the whole history of hum- humankind, we've seen a diminution of those types of societies going on. We can look That's at cultures an assumption. who That's in, an assumption no, no, no wait a minute. No, it's not an assumption, actually, Isaac. I have researched this for 40 years, and I have actually documented it. But take, for example, the Chamorro in the Pacific Ocean. Okay, today they're Catholics. They were conquered by the Spanish. Their culture has changed massively, although they still retain traces of this. And I think you have to have a much more complex view of this than black or white, there's actually cultural processes going on. I'm not talking about anthropological evolutionary theory or Marxist theory. I'm talking about looking at this in a new way and taking it apart and looking at elements of culture that actually are either egalitarian or else you actually have female spheres of power, you have male spheres of power, but they're in a complementary relation. What we're 
looking at is something different than a dominance-based system. Right. And there have been societies an egalitarian, If you have an egalitarian system, then calling it a mother rights system doesn't make any more sense than calling no, it, it a matriarchal one. And I'll explain one. to you why. If it's a patrilineal system, the only way you can enforce that is to force women to a sexual double standard. You can't know who the father is any other way. So that's why matrilineage is important, and that's what I'm calling mother right, because it's not only about lineage, but that's one factor. Matrilocality is another factor. If a woman is living with her kin, she's not going to get beat up by her husband, not, not in, a, in a society right. where yes. that's not encoded into, you know, the, the, you know, the Quran or the Bible or whatever says, you know, that wives should be subdued. I mean, there's a lots, of, lots of other factors to consider. But mm -hmm. each of these elements are important to look at because uh, female priesthood is another. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, that's something that, as you mentioned, you do find mentions of that in, in the Celtic world, you know, in the Gaulish world, in, uh, you know, the Irish tradition and stuff. But you don't see the, the mentions at nearly the degree that you see the masculine priests. So, you know, we're, we're looking at very complex, we have to take this all um, in a, in a, it, it, it's got to fit in itself into, we have to look at historical, we have to look at linguistic, we have to look at inscriptions, we have to look at folklore. There's all these factors. But I would encourage you, because when you say you're a heretic about matriarchy, what strikes me is that if you go into academia, that is the heresy, is to say that there was any egalitarian society, that there, it, mother right means anything as a social system for an egalitarian way of life. They that that's still okay, the doctrine. Okay. There is completely against saying that. Well, academia is generally about forty or fifty years behind society. I mean, you have to remember the single most powerful force in academia is fashion, and the well, opinions I, I of elderly that. professors. But you know, it's it's a doctrine. It's a doctrine, and the doctrine is male dominance from the beginning of time and patrilineal. You know, they basically ridicule well, matriarchy. Well, so I don't okay. see anything her heretical about that. What, what I have seen in, in academia has been um, an, an opinion that cultures have been male dominant the vast majority through most of human history. There are a few egalitarian cultures around, but they're very primitive Stone Age cultures and they're looked down upon by the very people who aren't supposed to look down on cultures because they're studying them. Um, you, may, however, they, they will uh, you may, however, be setting yourself up for more difficulty than you need by using the term mother right, which goes back to 1850 and has all these other meanings in academia. You know what? I've, I, I'm very it, familiar it, with It's like saying I have but this. We need words. I have We're this human lovely, beings. We need we, words that, that yeah, are going to be new meaningful ones. to people. Well, yes, I, I started out by talking about matrix societies because I like the concept okay. of matrix where, you know, you come from the womb. That's the Latin for womb. And right, matrix right, right. as the life support network and, you know, a complementary relation between genders. There's a lot of aspects to that. But then, see, you run into popular culture and the movie called The Matrix. Yes, and yes, so yes. we have a lot of difficulty, no matter what we're, what term we choose, because basically it always boils down to explaining to people what you're talking about. And the reason I abandoned the term matriarchy is, is simply because the structural parallelism of the terms makes people assume that you're talking about a reversal of male domination over women, and that's exactly. not very useful. So, exactly. but, you know, however, 
uh, people who disagree with me about that, there's a lot of indigenous women who are now talking about their societies being matriarchies. So, you know, it's it's, it's extremely complex, but I would encourage you well, to maybe look and, away and from the 19th century men for a while and let's and talk more overt, in modern terms. And then there's the overt versus covert levels of power that don't get discussed. Okay? Uh, I agree. You look, you look at your average Italian family or your average Polish family, or your average Irish Catholic family, and it's a matriarchy. Well, you know what, though? The thing about that okay, is that, that you know, you'll find that to in China, too. But that does not mean that women still don't get beaten up by their husbands. I, I, I'm or that the priest is going to order them out of the church because I'm, whatever. I'm, you know. I'm, I'm very much aware of that. What I am so saying So how can you call is, that a matriarchy? Hang on. What I'm saying is there are multiple levels of power in any society. And on some of those levels of power, in some societies, women have been given positions of, of, of authority, even though they may simultaneously be treated like dirt in other ways in that same society. I wouldn't it's say they've been simple. given them. I would say that they have retained them. Or, or just taken it. Yeah, because it's, it's uh, you know, I think that there are what, – what I think – key for all of this is to look at structural systems and Mm -hmm. women individually can go up against structural systems and they can take it as you say we can seize power we can carve out spaces for ourselves but the system is a lot easier if you don't have to bother oh yeah if you don't don't know and that's why it's important to have a system where it actually cradles you and says okay you know we are going to support this we're going we're going to honor public female power for example Mm -hmm. which has been really a battle in a lot of societies. Oh, yes. And, and, and you may have noticed, even when we do get women in positions of power in Western society, by and large, many of them aren't very nice. They tend to be the very conservative women. Well, because that power is totally conditional. Exactly. It's totally conditional in, in a dominance-based society. Yeah. And so, you know, those are just the very few that, that claw their way up there and they become Margaret, Margaret Thatcher. Exactly. <laughs> you know, but then... What, what I like to highlight is that because everybody's always looking at the people at the top of the heap, and I like to look back down to the indigenous societies, you know, going close to the earth there and looking at, and I'm not saying those are perfect societies, but that is where you find your models for open female power. That's where you find your models not only just on gender basis, but and, for And the challenge then becomes sharing. taking social models that work in a very – technologically and yes. simple society and applying to the, applying them to the incredibly complex technological society that we live in now. That's yeah. going to be the challenge for the next generation. That is the challenge now. And, and also it's not going to be the same as it was, but I think where it's helpful to know that these other kinds of societies have existed and some still exist. I mean, you've got the Moscow, you've got Vanatinai, you've got you know, a variety of them. That, that I've written about, that um, it tells us, it, it gives another model because people really become, and women especially, become demoralized when they're being told nothing else has ever existed and you've always been beneath men. Mm-hmm. That's really a paralyzing cultural norm that we have now, and it's inspirational to see that it was otherwise. I think that you know, that's very different from declaring a reversal domination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gosh, I, I hate to say this, but I'm going to have to agree with you. 
<laughs> you hate to say it, Isaac. Shame on you. Well, well, maybe you'll come over to my side and leave the Stephen Goldberg behind. Uh, well, well, can I ask you both a question? Um, the new the new book that's recently out, edited by Heidi Gottner Abendroth, I hope I'm not murdering her name too bad, Societies of Peace, Matriarchies, Past, Present, and Future. Where does this fit into your conversation? Because it sounds like you two are really the experts on this. I don't know because I haven't seen the book. I haven't seen it either, but what I do know is that she's part of a movement to reclaim the term matriarchy as mother origin rather than the archy of rule and hierarchy. They're taking arche, which means origin, and uh, some linguists are even saying, well, arche came from arche, and I don't know about that. But I also don't know about Flamen and Brahman because the linguists, the the Indo-European list, which I have seen you on, Isaac, uh, briefly, uh, they all agree that Flamen is, you know, Dumézil's breakdown around Flamen is actually linguistically void, that it's not actually a related term. But that be as it may. Well, it doesn't uh, matter if it's a related I, term. It was, a, it was a very similar, if not identical, social role. Well, I can agree with you on that. I'm just throwing that out yeah. in, in passing. But anyway, Abendroth was, uh, is basically saying, so they're, they're claiming matriarchy, and they're looking at uh, different societies they're around the world. They're just redefining it. They're redefining it. They're calling it the right. new different, the definition of matriarchy. And, 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 as long as and I haven't coming, seen the book. As long as they keep coming up with brand new definitions for matriarchy, eventually they'll find one that'll work for them. Well, I think that the definition they have works pretty well. I mean, because they are basically saying what I've been saying. You know, I mean, the, the data, if you look in there and you go into the matrilocal cultures and you look in the indigenous record for the egalitarian societies, then there's a complex of factors that you can point to and you can say, okay, matrilineage lineage is one. Uh, the divine female honored in the society formally, that's another matrilocality. And collective orientation. really hard in anti-aggression. the 21st century. Well, anti-aggression, you know, that's an important thing, yes. There, there's... There's a lot of things. Everything we're facing in the 21st century is very hard. But, yes. you know, it's, it's like, you know, because there's so many couples who break up, then, you know, that is a factor. And even you can see this in, in a lot of societies, like an African-American society, where and people break up and the woman goes back to her mother with kids, you know. So right. uh, some of those patterns still, still fall back because that's, well, you know, here's, here's, we're here's, in a society where women still care for the young as, as, a, as a predominant pattern. Here, here is my point that I've been trying to get across on this particular topic. I, uh, the first goddess that I ever got involved with was Athena. And I was introduced to Athena as the uh, patron goddess of scholars. That she, she was a goddess associated with academia and with the truth and with fighting fiercely for the truth. And one of the earliest spiritual impulses or or insights that I got from meditating on Athena was that the goddess doesn't need us to tell lies for her. That the goddess doesn't want us playing fast and loose with the facts, supposedly for her benefit. And where do the lies come in here? Well, the lies come in with some of the early people who made uh, all the comments about how there had been ma- uh, matriarchal religions before there were patriarchal religions, and it was those mean, nasty patriarchal Christians 10,000 years ago who caused all the trouble. Well, you know, there's a lot of people who don't know much about history, but I, I would 
I would say that I've been doing this since 1969. There's a lot of us who actually are pretty well informed. Yeah, you're, you're, you're the and, same, and you're the same we're, research we're generation taking, I am. I am. Yeah, that's yep. right. And so, um, you know, but the thing is, it's just more about visibility. And so, um, you know, I encourage you to look around because, uh, as I say, this is a point of view that is under siege. So uh, it's it's difficult to to get this viewpoint seen, but uh, I I think that it's really crucial for us to understand that there are other mouths. And I think on some base on some levels, you and I agree around you know what is desirable in yes. uh, for human society. I I don't agree with you when when it comes to someone like like Steve Goldberg who has this really contemptuous attitude um, because it's not true that all feminist scholars don't have a leg to stand on. And certainly aren't no. based on lies. No, but the, you know, it's much more, one, much more to it than that. The ones that he analyzed in his first book, he, he, I actually went back and read the original texts that were supposedly being quoted from, and I could see where lines had been deliberately left out and where things had been misquoted. So I've read there it, were I've some people too. playing fast and loose. Yeah, but um, you know, he also plays fast and loose in his own way because he's really dedicated to this idea of the inevitability of patriarchy. Mm. You know, why men rule? And well, so he'll grow he's got out of it a definitely or he'll die. Agenda. Well, yeah. You know, I mean, I think he's on. You know, this is not this is not the direction. This is the old model. You know. Yes, I I, I agree. So, and so I but I believe that we can best create a healthy, happy world that's good for everybody if we base what we're doing on as much honest, legitimate research as possible and as little ideology and dogma as possible. And I very early on saw the matriarchal branch of feminist ideology becoming incredibly rigid and dogmatic. Well, see, it's real ironic for me to hear you say that, though, because that is, that is I mean, we're, we're in a totally patriarchal society, so when people many of whom don't know anything about this, start trying to find alternatives for themselves. They may not be well-educated, but they might have the right instincts that things not only shouldn't be like this, but they haven't always been like this. Mm-hmm. And it's important to remember that because the denunciation of feminist extremism has gotten really old. It's part of the backlash. Well, and, and these people, most of the people I meet who are intense matriarchalists are themselves part of the past. They're they're not the modern feminist researchers. They're the they're the older generation who are still stuck in the dogmas they came up with in the 1960s. Okay, well we we won't we won't disagree on that. I mean, you know, it's it's. Um, I just you know it, it what what bothers me is the whole idea that it's just because this is what feminism faces. We're supposed to be the doctrinaire extremists, and everybody and then the reasonable stuff is to be found elsewhere. Well, That's not true. I'm very reasonable, really. <laughs> you sound perfectly reasonable, and I know plenty of feminist scholars who are very reasonable. Okay, but then but that's the stereotype. So why, why play to it? They don't talk about matriarchy. Well, because I know people know who are very reasonable. Doesn't make a lot of I know sense. I know a Seneca woman, a Barbara Mann, who is very reasonable, who talks about matriarchy, and that's her Iroquois tradition. So what are you going to say about that? Uh, yeah. Who did she get the word from, and how was it defined to her when she got it? No, 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 no. You have to read her book, Iroquoian Women, the Gantoesis. It's witty. Okay. She knows okay. the primary sources. She knows the secondary sources. 
She knows the tertiary sources. You should to- you should get a hold of it. It's it's. Well, I mean, you know, maybe she's I'm, too I'm feminist. I'm part of so I I, w- I will look for that actually. You should totally look for it. She's she's a very yeah, interesting yeah. Uh, person, okay. and you know, she's one of the people who has claimed the term, which I was surprised because she has a whole critique uh, addressing what you just said about mm-hmm. Euroforming the data, and mm-hmm. so I was surprised because of what happened with Morgan and all those early ideologies of anthropology. I didn't think mm-hmm. she would go for it because it is a European term in its yes. origins, you know. Yep. And so, but but that's her choice, okay? So she she chose it. I, I it's not the I don't think strategically it's the most useful term. But then, you know what? I've also seen things change around this a lot in the last ten years. You know where I'm fine. I'm seeing native people saying, oh, "Yeah, yeah, good. we're matriarchal." So that's you know that's okay. another formation. It has nothing to do with Bachofen. Exactly. And you it know? would be interesting to see how they're defining the word matriarchal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, check it out. Because, yeah. you know, like I say, that's not my term of choice. But, you know, what they have to say is very interesting and useful, I think, mm-hmm. aside from terminology. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, hey, I talked too long. No, 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 no. It's, it's been great. I really appreciate you calling in. I think I might know who this is. Did you want to identify yourself and your work? Because, I mean, you're, you're an awesome scholar in your own right. Oh, thanks. Uh, this is Max Dashu from the Suppressed Histories Archives, which is right now celebrating 40 years anniversary. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Beth. Presshistories.net. Thank you. Thank you so much for calling in. I, I enjoyed Thank that that lively conversation. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, Patrick, uh, Patrick, Isaac, I'm 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 already I'm I'm still on last week. Sorry about that. Um, I'm you know s- switching subjects here. Unless you had any closing comments about. Um, the, the matriarchal discussion. No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be fair now that she's 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 oh. offline. But that oh, was a okay. wonderful conversation. Yeah, I mean, Max I really is, enjoyed that. Yeah, Max is great. Uh, her suppressed uh, histories archive is uh, is is just awesome. It's a a body of work like you wouldn't believe. So mm-hmm. uh, she's she's actually been on our show, and uh, she'll be on our show again. You should, and, you should uh, put a link to them on your your blog talk page if you can. Yeah, and and she's on my website too, and I thank her oh, thank okay. her very very much for calling in because quite honestly, I could not have discussed with you uh, you know the subject in the depth that she could. So I really do appreciate her uh, her calling in because I don't uh, have that background that she's had for yeah, all of these okay. decades. But uh, let's switch gears a little bit um, and uh, you know get more into the maybe you know get out of the uh, sort of the left brain stuff and uh, go into the right brain stuff and the more okay. of the experiential. Um, you know, for our listeners who want to benefit from your you know your 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 knowledge of uh, you know connecting with the mother, how how do you do it? I mean, do you have a particular method for you know making that you know that deep connection? Well, actually, the simplest and, and, and longest-term method that I've used over the years is going for a walk in the woods. When I'm lucky enough to live by the ocean, I'll go for a walk down by the ocean. But getting out into nature is the primary way that, that I connect with the Earth Mother. Okay. Um, I do a lot of ritual work through um, my Druid work and, and sometimes my Wiccan and Azutru work. But by and large, um, for me, um, just shutting up and getting out in nature is what I need. Because as you've been able to tell from tonight's discussion, I'm very verbal. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm very left brain. And in order to get my left brain to shut up and let my right brain do a little thinking, 
Um, I need to sometimes go out someplace where there's nobody to talk to. And you just feel. You just absorb it all. Exactly. I um, I I learn more about um, spiritual things from watching nature and watching the interactions between the plants and the animals and uh, the mushrooms and everything else in the environment than I often get from, you know, reading books on theology and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, there's always also the, the simple fact of, you know, I see the Earth Mother in every mother. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, when I see a woman with a small baby, I see the Earth Mother. And I don't go around staring at them because that's going to freak them out. <laughs> but uh, I, I will occasionally watch mothers in the park with their children and watch the interaction there. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes get little spiritual insights from seeing how how those interactions take place in, in healthy relationships. That, you know, mothers have a lot to teach us if we just shut up and listen. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, are there any, you know, if, if someone were a novice at this, um, any particular steps, you know, you would recommend to them to to shut up and listen? And, you know, how do they... Uh, you know, how do they discern between their own imagination and, you know, divine guidance? Have you ever been asked that before? I've been asked that before, and my response to it is always don't worry about it. Okay, because that is attempting to make a sharp, clear-cut dividing line in a universe that is ambiguous and blurry. Sure, the first half-dozen insights that you get of a spiritual nature may well be different parts of your own subconscious mind talking to you. That doesn't mean it isn't also a message from the Earth Mother or from the goddess, however you perceive of the gods. Okay. Um, the, uh, most of the way that the gods talk to us mortals is percolating ideas up through our subconscious minds. Is that what those and 3 o'clock wake-up calls are? That, that is often, yes. That is what those three o'clock wake-up calls are. It's somebody trying to tell you something. And, yes, it's going to be affected by what's already in your brain, what's already in your subconscious mind. But after a few years of just listening and thinking about the stuff that percolates up, you learn to sort out what is, you know, human ego and what is something deeper and more spiritual trying to connect with you. Certainly, there are there are lots and lots of, of of books and courses around in how to meditate and how to you know uh, uh, hang your uh, left brain up on a hook for a while so you can concentrate on right brain stuff. That's not it's not difficult to find advice and ideas and how to do that sort of thing. Um, my primary method outside of just walking in nature is through ritual. I've been a ritualist my whole life. I started out as a Roman Catholic altar boy. Ah. And I find that the altered state of consciousness that a properly run ritual can induce is one that makes it easier for me to connect with spirit. That's what it's for. Right. Doesn't mean it's always successful or that it's always successful to the same degree. But... If you practice doing ritual work, after a while it becomes an art, uh, a skill, a habit that you have. 
and therefore it becomes something that you can use on a regular basis. Okay. Um, well, you know, a, a lot of your uh, your friends and your students uh, know that uh, you have been uh, battling cancer. Oh, that's um, been lots of fun. I bet. Um, Very exciting. I, I, I guess I wonder, um, you know, it, it, it's a traumatic, uh, life-changing. Uh, I mean, has there been any, anything you've gleaned, any particular insights that might help others that are, you know, battling with serious illnesses? Well, in my, in my case, I have um, I have cancer in an undignified location. Okay. And um, one of the major insights I got from it, I woke up in the middle of the night in the hospital on well, the first or second day after I'd been diagnosed, and I said, you know what, I have really got to get rid of all of this excess tish in my life. Mm-hmm. That's how dyslexics would put it. Mm-hmm. Um, get rid of all this excess tish in my life and start focusing on what's really important to me. Um, I'm 60 years old. I'm at the point where one author I know said, you start switching from what books uh, you what books you want to write to what books you're going to be able to get around to writing. Mm-hmm. Start. I start focusing my attention a little bit more. Um, I seem to be doing reasonably well with the with the cancer treatment. Um, there's a good chance I'm going to be uh, in complete remission within a couple of months. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, and then, you know, my life can go back to ordinary except for the tens of thousands of dollars of medical bills. So tell us about that. Um, are you, uh, do you have some sort of fund set up where if people want to help you at all, they can? Well, people have been making donations to... Uh, It's not an organized fund in a separate sense. It's just my PayPal account. Uh, But I have an iBonowitz at neopagan.net account with paypal.com. And people have been sending donations, and there's been a few people who've done benefits for us. And that money is is basically paying for the additional bills that our insurance isn't going to cover because, after all, this is America, and insurance Mm -hmm. won't cover everything. Um, and to replace the income that we lost once I stopped being able to do any kind of work. And you're still doing tarot readings? Well, I stopped doing tarot because I just couldn't focus enough. Okay. Uh, The chemotherapy and the radiation were making my brain a little too fuzzy to do really what I thought was accurate psychic work. But I'm going to start reading tarot again in late January or February, I believe. And, uh, you know, that start doing uh, speaking gigs again if people come up with them. But uh, in the meantime, it's been several months of loss of income, which is okay. not a lot of fun. No, I and uh, and and you probably still don't know what the um, you know what the final bill is going to end up being you know for for the medical that the insurance does. Oh no, pay. we won't know that. We won't know that for weeks and weeks because uh, the insurance companies like to dawdle in uh, making their uh, decisions about what they're going to cover and what they're not going to cover. Well, I'm curious, you know, speaking uh, on this subject, you know, I mean, I was, uh, you know, I was one of the folks that actually got out and campaigned for uh, for President Obama. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on the current health care bill that, you know, we've, you know, uh, that looks like maybe is going to pass? Is, uh, I mean, are you for kill the bill or are you for, are you for let's just get it started and we'll fix it later? I am I am for the principle of it's better than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick. 
Okay. That is to say, it's it does a number of good things that need to be done. It does not do a number of other good things that need to be done. Let's pass this one, and then next year we'll pass more. And as we gradually get rid of the, I uh, now switch into partisan mode, uh, blue dog Democrats, mm-hmm. we will actually be able to pass progressive um, health care and other progressive legislation. But it's not going to happen until we have campaign finance reform. Well, you know, that's uh, something fact, I that's, that's my only criticism of President Obama on this was he put the cart before the horse. He should have done campaign finance reform first to get the power of the insurance industry money out of the picture. Well, but let me ask you about that. Number one, I mean, I was following him pretty close. I mean, but did I miss that he said he was going to do that? Because I didn't think he he said anything about I, – I, I haven't heard anybody mention campaign finance reform in ages. I believe it was mentioned early on in his campaign and then not mentioned much after that. Well, you don't think that there would have been the same opposition from, you know, corporate America, from every, uh, you know, it, it, from every industry? If, oh, uh, and I'm sure there will be, and I'm sure it's going to be a very, very tough battle. But if he had done it first, the health care yeah. reform would have been a lot easier to, to accomplish. Yeah, because so, now we end so up... Would uh, so would uh, uh, cap-and-trade and other environmentally necessary legislation. So you are you still um, feeling like you're uh, – you still have patience for for uh, our president, or uh, are you just, starting to lose hope? I am just so goddessly happy that we have a smart president. <laughs> I'm with you there. That, I, that I am willing to cut him a lot of slack. Oh, I, I, you know what? I can go there with you, too. I, I am. And, you know, I have my days when I'm angry with him, but he's not Well, and, there, and there's something else you have to remember, you know, going back to patriarchy for just a moment. President Obama is surrounded 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 366 days a year by men with guns most of whom are right-wing in their personalities. You're, talking about, secret, you're talking about the Secret Service. I'm talking about the Secret Service, the FBI, the p- people from the Pentagon, the people from the CIA. He lives at the sufferance of those people who surround him. Are you saying what I think you're saying? Yes, I'm saying it. I believe there's a limit as to how liberal any president can get. Okay, and you know that's that that that's uh, not all American rah rah democratic. That's not what we're supposed to believe about our country. But it sounds pragmatic to me. It's very pragmatic, and I believe that Mr. Obama is a very pragmatic man, and he's going to do the best he can under the circumstances. Because that's all he wants to live. He wants to live to his daughters grow up. (laughs) All it takes is one little slip, one little oops by somebody in the CIA or the or the Secret Service, and all of a sudden he won't be there to do anything good for us in the future. Right, right. So I'm, I, I, I believe that he is a prisoner of the White House. I'll just put it that bl- bluntly. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, for you know, those of us like me who have my days when I, you know, really feel like where is the change, where is the hope, I, I'm going to mm-hmm. try to remember your words. I, 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 okay. Okay. 
Okay. Uh, well, we have about five minutes left, Isaac. Is uh, is there anything you'd like to share that we haven't talked about? Uh, anything well, important? Well, let, let me say um, my main website is www.neopagan.net. No hyphenation or, or capital letters. Okay. Um, I, we have I have a personal page on Facebook, and my wife Phaedra and I have a joint fan page on Facebook where people can keep up with uh, both our career and what's been going on with the cancer adventure. Okay. Uh, I'd also like to mention one book that uh, you forgot to mention, and that was the oh. book I wrote with Phaedra okay. called Real Energy. That came out in 2007. That's a book about chi and ki and prana and mana and vril and odic force and all the other strange things that people have called energy one way or another in the New Age and the neo-pagan movements. And would I be too forward to ask if you are trying to harness any of that to help with your own healing? Oh, I have been I have been using energy to to help heal myself. I uh, my, my doctor was wondering why it was that I seemed to be responding so well, and I said I've got five thousand people praying for me. <laughs> and she said that helps. That helps. That yeah, helps. There are there are people all over the internet who have been sending us both of us because we both need it, um, energy and strength and healing and. Uh, I, I have enough experience doing magic all these years that I'm able to focus a lot of that, and I believe that's been the primary reason why I'm healing as well as I am. Well, you sound like you're in good spirits. That's it, that's great. Well, I figured being in lousy spirits probably wouldn't help me heal any faster and wouldn't be much fun. Well, I look forward to you having this lift, uh, or you know, it, or at least in remission for the rest of your life, and so you can be out there again in, in front of your uh, audiences and your students, and uh, doing it is doing what it is uh, that's your passion. Yes. <laughs> well, this has well, been a lot of fun. This is a great show you got here. Well, thank you, Isaac. I, I, I really appreciate it, and you're welcome to come back on any time. I mean, we didn't really get a chance to talk about your music. If you want no, to take a minute, why don't you take a minute or two and, and tell listeners a little bit about that? Because you're a really well-rounded guy. Well, let's see. Um, I've been writing what I guess we could loosely refer to as pagan folk rock for about well, 40 years at this point. Um, a lot of the music I write is is meant to be used in ritual. Some of it is uh, uh, quasi-historical Margaret Murrayite um, fantasies about uh, the uh, secret old religion hiding in the woods. Uh, some of my uh, music is humorous music, making fun of the things that we pagans do to ourselves and each other. Um, I have uh, two and a half albums out, and they're available uh, through a page on my website if you just follow the various links, or you can go to neopagan.net slash money.html, which is our blatant hucksterism page where we uh, <laughs> talk about the various things we do to, to, to earn a living because in the pagan community, just being an elder isn't enough. You actually have to provide product to people. Well, and, and well, I mean, you have rent to pay, and you know, it's not like uh, you know we have communities anymore that supported the the tribal shaman. You know. Yeah, we've noticed that. <laughs> so uh, I design jewelry, and I have um, 
albums and individual MP3s of my music that's available, and I have a uh, cafe press page where I sell various graphic designs that are pagan-themed. Where do you find the time? Uh, well, that's all been done over the course of 40 years, so um, I managed to squeeze it in here and there. <laughs> <laughs> well, as my husband says, between 2 and 3 a.m. <laughs> Something like that, yes, a lot of it. Well, well, Isaac, it's been great. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show, and I look forward to highlighting some of your music and uh, some of the shows to come. I appreciate you offering I'll, I'll to let me some, do that. I'll get you some music, and uh, thank you so much. I look forward to doing this again. Okay, thank you. I appreciate you and uh, everything you've been uh, you've been doing for the pagan community. Okay. Good night. Right. blessings. So if you're just tuning in, this is Karen Tate, hostess of Voices of the Sacred Feminine, where we discuss goddess, the divine feminine, and the resurging interest in right brain thinking and the feminine consciousness, whether the great she be deity, archetype, or ideal. Um, and, uh, you know, these ideals uh, just could be the new values and uh, benchmarks that might save our world. And our guest tonight was the beloved Isaac Bonowitz, uh, who many of you asked uh, to, me to have on the show. Uh, he's certainly another serious mover and shaker and well-respected respect, elder in the community, and I so thank him for, uh, uh, for being on the show tonight. Uh, I'm going to take a very brief uh, one-minute music break, and then I'm going to return for our What's the Buzz segment. And I think I'm going to leave you listening to the Bard song in honor of Isaac by Jenna Green. We honor now the Celtic Bard, we offer up our praise. Guardians of our mysteries, keepers of the old days. Uh, a temple fragment uh, from an Isis temple. 
um, in uh, the Mediterranean Sea, right outside uh, the shores of Alexandria. And the um, Egyptian government is actually planning, and not too long from now, uh, to start plans for a uh, underwater museum that's going to highlight, uh, you know, what temples actually used to stand there in that area, and we know that that was uh, the stomping grounds of Cleopatra, who uh, believed that she was uh, a priestess of Isis. Uh, so, um, you know, I thought that was interesting, for, especially for those of us who are uh, ISIS-oriented. Also, uh, recently, uh, good news was that the African government of Uganda is actually going to be banning female genital mutilation. Uh, that's certainly a positive step in the right direction. And um, while they still have that kill the gay uh, law pending, which is pretty scary, uh, where they're actually talking about uh, killing people who uh, are known to be homosexual or, um, uh, uh, you know, imprisoning or, or arresting people uh, who know gays that don't turn gays in. Uh, real, real scary stuff going over there, going on over there in Uganda. But at least uh, they're making steps in the right direction when it comes to um, female genital mutilation. Uh, they say most of the victims uh, of female genital mutilation live in Africa and Asia and uh, some populations in India, Indonesia, and Malaysia. And we know as immigrants move into the West, they bring their, uh, you know, their traditions and cultures with them. So it's not unusual to actually find female gen uh, genital mutilation in, in Europe uh, and the United States. Uh, Alice Asalo, a member of the parliament in Uganda, said this bill against female gen genital mutilation was only a first step. Uh, she says, and I quote, uh, we might later amend it to include compensation for women subjected to the practice. She says their goal is to protect these girls and they'll continue to do so. Um, uh, she reminds us that female genital mutilation has been banned in some African countries, but it's still practiced in some of the remote, close-knit communities. And some communities are also shifting toward a less invasive procedure called what, uh, what's termed the lesser cut, and that's according to the United Nations. Uh, so it might be indicative of shifts in awareness. However, it's still uh, an unacceptable practice, whether it's the lesser cut or not. Um, also, you might want to uh, pick up the um, archaeology magazine for January and February. Uh, there are some great uh, uh, articles in there. One is about Iron Age priestesses, uh, the discovery of a powerful female bloodline. Uh, in, the, in the trenches column, they talk about uh, Aphrodite figurines found in Israel. Uh, under Copper Age thinkers, uh, they talk about uh, all the motifs. Uh, from the Romania area um, that were from the Copper Age. And it sort of segues into that exhibit in New York that's uh, showing now through April called The Lost World of Old Europe, Danube Valley, 5000 to 3500 uh, B.C. And I think especially if you're a fan of Maria Gimbutas, uh, that would be something of interest to you. Um, don't miss the exhibit if you're if you're near New York City. And uh, pretty soon I'll have a review of the exhibit in my examiner column. Uh, Lydia Rule, a scholar and friend of mine, is visiting the exhibit, and she promised to uh, let us know uh, just how 
uh, how good it is. So, you know, we've we've heard it's 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 pretty awesome. Uh, the other thing I wanted to share with you is um, some some reviews of the movie Avatar. Uh, I actually wrote a column uh, in the Examiner where I'm the LA Women's and Goddess Spirituality writer, and uh, I was really impressed with the movie Avatar. Um, you know, there there were a lot of things that people have criticized. You know, the violence some of the stereotypical characters. It's not a new story. But there was so much beauty in that movie. And I can't tell you uh, how powerful it was, for me at least, to hear characters say words like this. Uh, Jake Sully, one of the uh, characters in the movie, he's praying to the mother goddess of the indigenous Navi, and he's kneeling before her at the Tree of Souls, and he implores her for her help, saying that his race, the earthlings called the sky people, have destroyed their mother, and now they're coming tomorrow to destroy her. Um, it, uh, it, the movie opened, I think, a week or two ago, and uh, I have to tell you, it was in 3D. Uh, it wasn't the cheesy 3D like, uh, you know, those old movies. It was, it was just uh, awesome a technological feat uh, of James Cameron. Uh, and, you know, he's also proven over and over again he likes powerful women, and in this film he continues that trend. If you're a, a fan of Sigourney Weaver and you missed her character Ripley of uh, alien movie fame, well, she's back in this movie as Dr. Grace Augustine, and she just stands toe-to-toe with those Marines and gives it to them. Uh, you know, she just doesn't take uh, anything from them as she tries to, you know, defend this indigenous uh, Navi race. Um, you know, they live on a planet called Pandora, and they live in what appears to be an egalitarian society where there's equality among the genders as a female shaman and a male warrior uh, lead their tribe. And they're interconnected with nature, literally plugged in to the energy forces of the natural world and the species around them, including their ancestors and the mother goddess, I believe they called... um, E-way. I, I, I might have that wrong. I should have written it down, but it's close. And um, and it, it and another one of those memorable moments, uh, Jack Sully, when he's telling, uh, you know, the Marines why the Navi or the Navi don't want to leave their sacred land, and you know they won't be convinced to. He says, "What can we offer them for their sacred land and resources? Budweiser and blue jeans? They need nothing we have to offer." Anyway, it was an incredible movie, I thought. Um, and, of course, when the carrots don't work to bribe the Navi to, to leave their homeland so Earth can grab their natural resources for themselves, the mercenaries are only too happy to bring out the big sticks and rid themselves of these problematic blue monkeys, as they call them, or tree huggers. And there's this uh, pivotal moment in the movie where the uh, home tree of the Navi um, is attacked by a military strike force financed by corporations from the now greenless earth. And, uh, you know, through my goddess advocate lens, its destruction was just a metaphor for the sky god Kurgan invaders of matriarchal societies. You know, it's the battle between Tiamat and Marduk. It's nature versus man-made religious dogma. Um, I don't know. I just felt that Avatar spoke to our long history of humanity's exploitation of nature and and really the disregard for the interconnection of all life. You know, it, it sort of stood as a testament to every indigenous culture destined, uh, decimated by imperialism or colonialism. 
and uh, has been repeated by so many times in human history. Those with the power come in and take what they want and justify it by making those they're stealing from the enemy. Um, well, you know, I'm not going to be a spoiler here. I'm not going to tell you how it ends. Um, but in Avatar, I believe we're reminded what ideals of goddess and nature are. And even if they're prevailing on a fictional faraway planet of Pandora, uh, she still brings us hope. And James Cameron gave the right side the win. So as we say goodbye to 2009 and hello to 2010, let us hold close to our hearts and minds our resolves to help shift our world to a more sustainable future, and not just for the few, but for the many and for our Mother Earth. Uh, let's see what else I have to share with you. Um, there was the good news in Denver, Colorado. Uh, an evangelical church is now opening its doors fully to gays. Uh, Reverend Mark Tidd of Highlands Church in Denver, he's 55 years old, wears jeans and sports a spiked gray hairdo. Uh, you know, he says that, um, you know, he's opening his church to gays, and their position is not one of lenience, but a matter of justice. Uh, he's a married father of five, and he goes on to say, it's not that we don't acknowledge the reality of sin, but it's not a sin to be gay or act in accordance with your nature. So, uh, of course, uh, you know, he doesn't have a lot of other evangelicals lining up behind him to take the stand, but, you know, it's got to start somewhere. So uh, thumbs up to Reverend Mark Tidd. Uh, let's see. Also uh, on, uh, you know, a, another note that's not as, as upbeat, but, uh, you know, we have to shed light on these things. Apparently, lesbians in South Africa are facing what uh, men are calling corrective rape. And this is from Sky News. And uh, I actually first saw it because of uh, Micah Stone's article. He's the Portland Humanist Examiner, and he brought this to my attention. He says, in Soweto, South Africa's biggest township, uh, Sky News went to gauge the views of men towards lesbians in society. Um, this is a huge, sprawling township in Johannesburg, and although there is progressive post-apartheid black middle class in South Africa, uh, Sky News was told the views of the men who spoke up were reflective of the masses. One man roared with laughter as he said, lesbians should be whipped. There is no mention of lesbians in the Bible, he said. So here we go, using the Bible to justify this oppression. They said they approved of lesbians being raped to correct them and to teach them a lesson. They said women should behave like women, and this was a way of teaching them that. Uh, the story is an ugly reminder of our collective potential for inhumanity and degradation, says Micah Stone. It should be no surprise that, the bottom of, uh, that at the bottom of this uh, degradation and inhumanity is the Bible. Once again, the Bible and religion are being used to justify a foul and heinous crime. Uh, once again, Christianity is at the bottom of that which is despicable. And he uh, ends his article with a quote from Voltaire, those who believe absurdities will commit atrocities. So, but we want to end uh, What's the Buzz on a uh, upbeat note, because after all, it is the holidays. And the last couple shows, I have been sharing with you uh, information about Holda. 
she is a Norse deity that is just as well be called uh, a female Santa. And uh, thanks to Selena Fox of Circle Sanctuary, uh, I learned about Holda. And uh, we talked a bit about her uh, uh, recently, but here are some other things about her. Uh, geese are sacred to Holda, and some say she is the source of the storybook character Mother Goose. As the Lady of Beasts, Holda has many creatures associated with her, including hounds, wolves, pigs, horses, goats, bears, birds of prey. In some tales, she lives in the woods and is the ancient half-tree, half-woman who gave birth to humankind. Apples and flax are among the plants sacred to her. Holda is also associated with lakes, streams, and wells. In the Grimm's fairy tale Mother Hole, H-O-L-L-E, she is visited by two half-sisters at her home at the bottom of a well, where she rewards the industrious one with gold, but covers the lazy one uh, with pitch. Holda is a goddess of hearth and home uh, who presides over spinning and domestic arts. She also symbolizes virtue, wisdom, and womanhood. Uh, today, across the United States and other parts of the world, Holda is remembered not only by folklorists, but by pagans of many paths who invoke her and give her offerings and share her stories and traditions in winter solstice rituals and celebrations. And as Holda takes her Yuletide ride this year, may she bring the world her blessings of peace, prosperity, and well-being. Well, um, if you're wondering why I... Um, I consistently have this What's the Buzz segment. Uh, I remind uh, listeners uh, each show it's because of uh, the programming that's out there. It's because of the divisiveness. It's the fear-mongering, the intolerance. Uh, It just seems to have ratcheted up a lot lately, and uh, we really need to uh, find common ground. Uh, You know, we have to constantly educate, whether we're educating about women's issues or religion or human issues. There's just so much disinformation and intentional deflection going on. We have to inoculate ourselves against ignorance and tolerance and all those insidious isms. And, uh, you know, my little bitty effort here, what's the buzz segment, well, that's sort of what I'm trying to do. Uh, So with that being said, the bees are released from my bonnet for yet another week. And um, uh, Lane Redman promises me very soon in the uh, early part of next year she's going to actually give me uh, some sounds of bees to be able to play uh, at the beginning and end of the segment. I look forward to that. That's going to be really cool. Well, uh, we are in our uh, Four Mothers and Way Shower series, Full Force, and I thank you for your interest. Uh, you see a host of shows, uh, can see how many people are listening, and you're definitely out there listening, let me tell you. Uh, and again, I can't thank you enough, and I will thank you over and over again for your listener, listener loyalty. And don't forget, this series was inspired by you, and I just followed through on the brainstorm you gave me to put the series together. You asked, where were the, the Way Showers? Where were the Four mothers. Well, uh, they're here every week, usually on Wednesday night at 6 o'clock, generously giving more of their time for you to hear uh, what's stoking their passions, what they believe, um, you know, they're, they're, they're teachers foremost. So if you're new here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine on Blog Talk, uh, we uh, can take your, uh, your questions. Uh, we'll still be on the line here for a few minutes if uh, you want to call in, 718-766-4662. And uh, let's see, what else do I want to tell you tonight? Um, 
Uh, you heard me mention before, I'm now the L.A. Women's and Goddess Spirituality Examiner for examiner.com. Uh, I invite you to check out my articles and leave comments, please. Um, you know, examiner people like to know that people are reading, and the only way they know people are reading is if you comment. So please, uh, you can find uh, my column uh, by going to my website. That's the easiest way, KarenTate.com. And uh, on the home page right at the top, there's a link uh, to uh, my examiner column, or just go straight to examiner.com and put in Karen Tate, and you'll either find my column or columns that have been written about me. I guess I'm inspired by people like Patrick McCullum and Jean Shinoda Bowen and Rianne Eisler. I'm just trying to do my small part out there in the world to uh, activate minds and hearts about the ideals of the sacred feminine. Uh, I want to remind you that uh, pre-registration is underway for cakes uh, for the Queen of Heaven uh, classes coming in January at the uh, Goddess Temple in Orange County. You could sort of call it Goddess 101. Uh, it's an 11-class series, and uh, they're twice a month. Uh, so if you want more information, please email me at KarenTate108 at ca.rr.com. I'll be giving a talk on sacred places of goddess around the world and the esoterica of sacred travel in January at the Sophia Temple, otherwise called Olandor, uh, the home of Carla and Leigh McCloskey. Uh, that's in Malibu, California. I also invite you to visit the media page of my website and catch the radio interviews that I'm invited to do. Just recently I was uh, interviewed by a station in South Africa, and, uh, and I was talking about the sacred feminine for a sustainable future. And it was really interesting because, um, you know, that's a country that has become about 85% Christian. And I was not surprised at all that uh, some of the listeners were emailing in the host saying that they didn't uh, necessarily believe in what I was talking about because they believed that women were put on this earth to serve men. So I said, well, you know, we don't all believe that, and uh, gave them some reasons for women's equality and uh, some reasons why, you know, maybe they could uh, give them permission, give themselves permission to rethink those thoughts. Uh, did you know that there are free downloadable meditations on my website? Yep, at uh, KarenTate.com. Uh, go there and look for them. They're on the page that's called Goddess Store. Uh, while you're there, get to know me better. Check out my two books, Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations, which uh, actually I'm proud to say has garnered some prestigious endorsements. And my second book, the newest, Walking Ancient Path, it actually won a place as a finalist in the USA National Best Books of 2008. And uh, one of the endorsements that I got that I'm most proud of from the scholar David Hillman, he said that uh, Walking Ancient Path is an immensely pleasurable and enlightening journey that stands boldly against the patriarchal denigration of the divine feminine. Well, that's what I'm about. What can I say? Uh, please go to my events page, see if I'll be appearing in a town near you. Uh, and I do travel outside Los Angeles, so if uh, a sponsoring group would like me to come give a workshop or presentations, I have lots of, uh, of, of, of workshops and slide presentations uh, and, and talks that I can uh, entertain you with for a weekend. Uh, see what talks I already have available to give your group. There's a page on my website that lists the talks. Check out my articles and links page referring you to people around the world making a difference. Uh, please take advantage uh, of the offer I have on my website in the Goddess Store. You can get both my books for $25 plus shipping and handling, and that's actually cheaper than buying them uh, both new on Amazon. 
So um, in closing, I'd like to leave you with the guest lineup for the coming weeks. Uh, on January 6th, uh, Miriam Dexter, a well-known and respected goddess scholar from UCLA, uh, is going to be with us, and uh, we're going to be talking about um, uh, f- uh, feline iconography. And um, let's see, what did she say here? I think I have it handy. Uh, the description is actually on uh, the Blog Talk website. But uh, let me see if I can put my hand on it here really quick. Uh, yeah, Cabelli and the con- Continuity of Feline Iconography. So that should be fun. Uh, also, Louisa Tisch uh, is going to be my guest on the, the next show on the 13th of January, followed on the 20th by Carol Christ. Uh, and the last Wednesday of January is going to be Jean Shinoda Bolin. So uh, we're coming to the end of the show, and um, I like to uh, end the show sometimes with a, a closing prayer before we, uh, you know, we have the closing music. So I invite you to close your eyes and take a deep breath with me, and uh, bring an even even deeper uh, level of focus uh, to the lovely words that I'm going to read that uh, actually were inspired by uh, Ava Park. Um, the center holder and founder of the Goddess Temple in Orange County. Um, She says, one thing and one thing alone will solve virtually every problem this planet currently has. What is it? It's devotion. Devotion to Mother Earth, to Goddess, to life. With devotion as our foundation, we could not mistreat, exploit, or dishonor each other, the Earth, or animals. With devotion as our foundation, we would share what we had and poverty would end. Violence would be simply unthinkable. Devotion is so lacking in our world, and yet it is the very foundation of a beautiful life. Great Queen, Mother, and She of the Throne, in this the dark of the year, divine magic remains the sacred spark within me. Each day I remember and I use it well. Thank you, Creatrix of life. Blessed be. Well, uh, thank you for tuning in for another week, and uh, I'd like to leave you with uh, one of uh, another of my favorite musical pieces. And uh, let's see, tonight I think that is going to be um, Invoking Aphrodite by Lane Redmond. So good night, and thank you for tuning in, and I hope you'll be back with us next Wednesday after the holidays at 6 p.m. when our guest will be Miriam Miriam Robbins Dexter, and we'll be talking about Cabelli. And here is Invoking Aphrodite. Have a wonderful New Year's, listeners, and I'll see you in 2010.
What's up with your calendar? I replace all the days of the week with sandwiches. Because? Because at Subway restaurants, every day, there's a different sub of the day. Fair enough. Yeah. Each day, I can choose a different six-inch sub for just $3.50 or get it as a foot-long sub for $6. So why is today circled in red? Oh, today's my anniversary. Oh. Maybe you should. Yeah, I got to go. Subway. Fresh is what we do. Limited time only. Prices and participation may vary. Additional charge for extras and deluxe, plus tax for applicable. Sandwiches prepared in front of you.